Lamentation chapter 2. You're probably familiar with the um, statement Karl Barth made. It's a well-worn illustration. Karl Barth was, is a, was the German theologian who um, astounded the theological world with his discussion of grace. And a brilliant theologian is Karl Barth. Somebody asked him one time on a visit to America what was the greatest thought he had ever thought. And expecting some kind of a real profound theological statement, they were shocked when he gave his answer. He said, the most profound thought I have ever thought is this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There's something really profound about the things simple. I want to ask a question tonight. It's not a rhetorical question. It's a real, a real question. And it deserves an honest answer. The question is this. How does God deal with a Christian who disobeys Him? I mean, how does God, what does God do about a Christian who is disobedient? What action does God take when one of His own hears the message, hears the message from God and says, I'm just not going to do that? Well, the answer to that question you can find in Scripture, and the answer is profoundly simple. For example, in the book of Job, chapter 4, verse 8, there is Eliphaz, who is one of Job's so-called friends, who has come to counsel Job concerning his suffering. And he, he makes a lot of stupid statements, really, but he does make a, a wise and profound statement when Eliphaz says, According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Simple but profound. That whatever you sow, you reap. That for every action, there is a corresponding reaction. Hosea put it in a little bit more of a theological framework when he said, Sow the wind, and you reap the whirlwind. And the word whirlwind there in the Hebrew is a word that means, it would be in our time, it would mean tornado, so that if you sow to the wind, if you, if you live, according, live in disobedience, if you walk according to the flesh, you reap a harvest of pain and trouble. John Lawrence tries to illustrate that in a story he tells, a true story, whether it happened or not, about a young man who was getting ready to go to college. He said, June the 14th, this boy was with his father when his father ran a red light. And when the cop got back in his car and they pulled away from the curb, the boy's father chuckled and said, Well, I'll never pay that fine. Old Fred will take care of it down at City Hall. On June the 15th, his mother backed into a tree and bent the fender, said to her son, We'll say that somebody ran into us at the mall and the insurance will pay for it. On June the 16th, he listened to his grandfather reminisce 
that he had made $100,000 selling black market goods during the war. And on June the 18th, he listened to his mother and father as they sat up in the night trying to figure out how they could get some financial aid so their son could go to a prestigious university. And they finally determined how they could falsify their, their uh, financial statement and receive some financial aid they weren't entitled to. So he went to that prestigious university. During the semester, one of his friends stole the, uh, the, the answers from a test that were, they were about to to take and sold those answers, this boy bought one of the sheets, caught, got caught cheating, was expelled from school. He came home to, his, to the groan and the grief of his father's outrage and his mother was crying and said, I can't understand how you could disgrace us like this. You certainly weren't raised that way. Well, you sold to the flesh and you reap a harvest of misery. And that is the theme of the book of Lamentations. And that's why scripture is sometimes negative. Because the scripture wants us to feel uncomfortable at the very thought of disobeying God. I want you to see tonight Moses as he stands on Mount Pisgah and he looks longingly across the way to Canaan. He's lived 80 years to enter Canaan, but he won't because he's disobeyed God and he's made an irrevocable choice that has disqualified him for Canaan. I want you to see Samson, once a mighty man, used of God in his battle against the Philistines. Now he's shorn of his strength and he walks around in the gristmill like a beast. For the scripture points out that sooner or later everybody comes to a fork in the road in life. Now, you may not be familiar with a, that term, fork in the road. You, you know what a crossroad is, but I grew up in a country and not far from my house was a fork in the road. It didn't come to a crossroad, actually. The, the road just divided, and part of it went, one way, went to the right, and, and then a road went to the left. Sometime, or sooner or later, all of us in experiences come to forks in the road. The voice that comes at the fork in the road says, Take the left. Don't worry about the next day. Get all you can out of life now. Live for the moment. That's essential. And the other voice says, Consider the end, my friend. The way of tr the transgressor is hard. Consider that the choice you make and what you sow you'll reap. And lamentation is the story of a person, of people, of a people who chose the way of the immediate and the book cries out, don't do that again. Now there are some things we need to remember about lamentation by way of review. You remember that it was written by Jeremiah the prophet in 586. He'd been preaching for 40 years. He'd been warning Judah 
that they were sowing to the wind and would someday reap the whirlwind. And he saw them fall under the host of the heels of Babylon. And now he is walking through the streets and is lamenting over the consequences of their choices. Now when you and I opt for our own way, what happens? I want to answer the question, what action does God take when a Christian disobeys? And from this text, chapter 2, there are at least five consequences. Please get them down. The first is this, the consequence of the wrong choice of disobedience, the first, a diminishing of dignity and uniqueness. There is the diminishing of one's dignity and uniqueness impact. Now what what Judah had was a uniqueness, the people of God were different. And they had a distinctiveness about them that characterized them as God's people. And they were, they had a witness. They had an impact. And they were on the cutting edge of what God was doing redemptively in history. But when they settled for carnal living, that cutting edge was blunted and they lost their distinctiveness. We would say it like this, they lost their testimony. Now look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up He has not spared all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned, that word means he has made common like the rest of it, like everybody else. He has made common the kingdom and its princes. What he's saying is this that the result, the consequences of the choice of this nation was that they lost their ability to be unique in the world. They lost their witness. They became like everybody else. I remember reading in the second chapter of the book of, of the Revelation, the letters of, of, the, of the Lord to the churches And there's this letter to Ephesus, oh Ephesus, glorious Ephesus. And God says, I know your orthodoxy, so I know you've dotted every I and crossed every T, you are orthodox to the core. But I have something against you, you have left your first love. Therefore, he says, watch this, I'm going to come and I'm going to take the lampstand from among you. You know what he's talking about? He's saying, I'm going to come and put out your light. I'm going to take away your testimony. I'm going to remove from this church the impact you once had. What a sad day when God turns the light out on a church and removes its lampstand 
and takes away its cutting edge. He'll do that, you know. I want you to turn back with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 3, one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture that illustrates this. Verse 16 of Jeremiah 3. And it shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord. They shall say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord And it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they miss it, nor shall it be made again. Now, let me tell you what he's saying. He said, the day is coming because of your disobedience when they'll take the ark of the covenant from the midst of you and nobody will miss it. You remember what the ark of the covenant was? It was just a box, really, that contained three sacred Articles, the show, the the, the manna, a uh, a portion of the manna that that God had given in the wilderness wanderings, Aaron's rod that budded, and a and the tablets on which the commandments were written. And in this ark of the covenant were these three um, artifacts, really, of Israel's history. Clyde Francisco, the great Old Testament uh, scholar in Golden Gate, calls the Ark of the Covenant the National Museum of Supernatural History. He said the Ark of the Covenant contained supernatural evidence of a supernatural religion so that somebody could get together in church and they'd say, you believe in miracles? The guy said, well, I don't know if I do or not. Do you? He said, you bet I believe in miracles. Look in the box. And he had opened the Ark of the Covenant, if that were possible to do, and, and, and in that Ark of the Covenant were the external evidences of a supernatural God. Now what Jeremiah is saying is that the day is coming if God's people are disobedient when every external evidence of a supernatural God is gone. Now I hope I'm gone before that happens in this church. You think of any more hor- thing any more horrible than that that one day God locks the door to the church and turns out the lights and removes its lampstand. William McCartney, who tries to press home the the essential nature of of a preacher, especially living a sanctified life, says, quote, the better the man, the better the preaching. When he kneels to pray or he mounts the stairs to preach, Every temptation resisted strengthens him for the task. But every evasion of duty, every indulgence of self, every unsanctified thought or deed is heard by the stars and takes the power from his voice and the ring from the blow. What has happened in Judah is that the ring from the blow is gone. I shudder to even think about that thought. Now, If you brought that down from the context of a corporate group to an individual sitting out in front of me or on the sides, this is what it says. It is possible for you to lose the impact of your testimony. And when you lose the edge of your witness, you've lost the most important possession you have as a Christian. Second, 
consequence is the removal of stability and vitality. Now I want to read verses 3 and 4. The removal of stability or strength and vitality, life. In fierce anger he has cut off all the strength of Israel. And that word there in the Hebrew, it refers to that inner strength that a person possesses that enables him to overcome, to say no, to resist. Enables him to make decisions that God wants him to make. Courage and boldness and power. He loses that inner strength and he finds himself vacillating with regard to every decision and prey to every temptation. The consequence of choosing to disobey God is that it becomes more difficult to obey Him the next time and easier to sin. He has no strength to say no. Verse 4, He has bent his bow, or verse 3 really, in fierce anger he's cut off the strength and he has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire consuming round about. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary, slain all that were pleasant to the eye. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his wrath like a fire. That word means, the idea is that he has, he's consumed, he's burned out. He's lost his vitality, his enthusiasm. Does that sound like anybody you know? I mean, how do you come to, do you come dragging into church, you know, with no enthusiasm, no, are you burned out as a Christian? George Whitfield of Edinburgh was this great preacher. People would gather at 5 a.m. in the morning to hear him preach. One day David Hume, the Scottish atheist and infidel, was seen on his way to listen to Whitfield preach at 5 a.m. in the morning. One of the skeptics said, well, Hume, I didn't think you believed the gospel. He said, I don't, but Whitfield does. What about you? Is there an enthusiasm and a vitality, an excitement about your walk with God that just attracts even the unbeliever? There's a third consequence. It's the multiplication of bitter anguish. Verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy. Now let me pause to ask a rhetorical question. Does it sometimes seem like God's against you? He may be. Does it seem like that every time you try to do something that he just seems to block the way? Does it seem like that God is more an enemy than a friend, that he's more against you than for you? He says, God has become our enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palace, destroyed all of its strongholds, multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and moaning. Now, mourning is a word that, that means to weep as one who weeps over the death of another. But the word moaning there is this guttural sound that comes from the inside that refers to inner pain, inner pain, so that what has happened as a result of their sin is this. 
they've lost, they sense they have lost something they've cherished, and they hurt on the inside. Now I want you to turn, if you will, back to the book of 2 Samuel. Now 2 Samuel is an Old Testament book over there by, um, well, Joshua. You're pretty familiar with that. You can find it. You're in the neighborhood. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 18. I want to read the last few verses of chapter 18. While you're turning with your finger and listening with your ear. This morning when I got goofed up on that illustration, I looked over here and somebody was, I could just see on their face, now what did he say? <laughs> I mean, man, that didn't make a bit of sense. And then, when I talked about turning with your ear, now that, that, now that really did, that really brought some, some head shakes. I'm like, whoa, preachers. So turn with your finger to 2 Samuel chapter 18. Listen with your ear. Verse 31. And behold the Cushite arrived. Let me give you the background. David has a son. You remember his name? Somebody tell me. Absalom. And Absalom turns against his father and takes his throne away from him. And he gathers this, he's a handsome man and charismatic, so he gets this following of people and they take the kingdom away from David. And there's this struggle going on. And, and one day the Cushite comes to tell David, you know, that, hey, everything's all right, you're back on the throne. Well, listen what happens. Behold, the Cushite arrived, the Cushite said, let my lord the king receive good news. For the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of those who rose up against you. You're back, you're back at number one. But David wasn't concerned about the throne. Listen to what he says. David said, the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? What about Absalom? And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil as be as that young man. In other words, Every enemy ought to be as dead as he is. And the king was deeply moved. Now get this picture. Here's a father who's just lost his son. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, means he's pacing back and forth in this room. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you O Absalom, my son, my son. And all of a sudden, there's the description of the multiplication of bitter anguish. Now, it's not going to get any better, I hate to tell you this. We're talking about what happens when God's people disobey Him. And the question might come, well, don't, you know, God's people, aren't, don't they have special, don't, don't we get some special treatment? Listen, you're in double jeopardy. And that's what God meant through the prophet Amos when he said, you only have I known of all the people of the earth, therefore I judge you with double jeopardy. Doesn't get any better. All right, number four. Fourth consequence is the feeling of abandonment. 
and emptiness. Verses 6 through 8. And he, was, he has violently treated his tabernacle like a garden booth. He's destroyed his appointed meeting place. The Lord has caused to be forgotten the appointed feast and Sabbath, and he has despised king and priest in the indignation of his anger. The Lord has rejected his altar. He's abandoned his sanctuary. He's gone. You can meet, but he's not going to be here, he said. He's abandoned his sanctuary. He's delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of his palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord. How ironical is this statement? Now watch what he's saying here. He's saying when they came to church to worship, all the worship they were doing was just noise. Their worship was just noise. They were like a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. What a tragedy coming to the house of God and the singing and the praying and the preaching is just noise. It's like banging on a, on a cymbal. What a, what a picture. Fifth consequence. There was the heartbreaking absence of vision and purpose, verses 9 and 10. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Look at this. Also her prophets find no vision from the Lord. They come to church and the prophet says, I don't have anything to preach. God has shown me nothing. No vision. And the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground. They are silent. They have nothing to say. They've thrown dust on their heads, which is the symbol to the Jew of absolute despair. They've girded themselves with sackcloth, and the virgins of Jerusalem, the women, the beautiful women, have bowed their heads to the ground. Obey God and you walk according to the flesh, the harvest you reap is this. You missed, you miss the reason you were born. Now there's a follow-up, and I know we got to hurry and get to the end of this. Just hang in, listen quick, will you? Listen faster than you've lived. There's a follow-up. Jeremiah tries to console them in verses 12 and 13. He says, how can I console you? There's no way to console somebody who has turned their back on God. You can't say to them, it'll, get, it'll be all right, because it won't. When God reaches out His hand to judge one who has disobeyed Him, you can't say to that person, it's going to be okay, because it isn't. And so he says... Um, in verse 15 he says people now mock you all who pass along the way clap their hands in derision at you they hiss and shake their heads they mock the at the daughter of Jerusalem is this a city of which they said the perfection and beauty the joy, joy to all the earth what mockery see I'm going to say this as delicately as I can 
when a people walk in disobedience, they become the laughing stock. When the people of God walk in disobedience, whether it's an individual or a church, they become the object of the city's mockery, laughter. They do. You can go back to my hometown and ask about a certain man there. I'll not call his name. At one time was a Sunday school superintendent, all that good stuff. Now, when they call his name, you have to buy the coffee. You know how that goes? You said his name, you've got to buy the coffee. He's the object of mockery and ridicule. And when Jim Baker and Tammy Faye and Jimmy Swaggart made the decision they made and did what they did, I mean, it was on every late night talk show, mockery and jokes and laughter. Because when you when you walk in disobedience and you're a child of God, the result of that is that you are the object of disdain and mockery. And so is our Lord. Because He said, You have made me a reproach among the Gentiles. Now who's responsible for this judgment? Verse 17. The Lord has done what He purposed. This this judgment that Jeremiah laments is the result of God. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has accomplished His word which He commanded from days of old. He's thrown down without sparing. He hasn't spared God's people because they're God's people. You sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind whether you're God's people or not. And you say, well, why would God do this? Because He loves you too much to let you go on the way you're going. I used to read the book of Acts. And I'd come to the fifth chapter and I'd read that account there of Ananias and Sapphira. And that seemed so out of place. Because up to the fifth chapter of the book of Acts... Everything is just going great. I mean, the church is multiplying and everybody, they're bringing their possessions and they're distributing. All of a sudden, you got these two people who lie and boom, they're, they're struck dead. All of a sudden, one day it occurred to me that where God in His Holy Spirit is most present, you'll find the greatest exercise of his judgment against sin. And where God's Holy Spirit is most in control, you'll have the greater judgment concerning any disobedience. He's, He's responsible for this because they have made their choice and he's not, he loves them too much to allow them to go on like that. And secondly, he doesn't want their testimony, their influence to affect others. Look at verse 19. He says, Arise, cry aloud in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to Him. Look, for the life of your little ones who are faint because of hunger at the head of every street. What he's saying is this, you need to repent because your choices have affected others. 
Isn't that amazing? That God is going to protect little ones from your evil witness. Hmm. Now the question is, why is this happening to me? Why this? Why now? Well, mark this down. Whatever has happened to you or to me is coming from the God who loves me and has my good at heart. I want to close by reading just a little bit of Psalm 73. Would you turn to that? Psalm 73. And verse 3. Beginning verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men. Nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is in their necklace. Their garment of violence covers them. Their eyes their eye bulges from fatness. The imagination of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them and they say, how does God know and is there knowledge from the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased their wealth. Surely I have in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. The psalmist is upset, to say the least, by the fact that he assumes that the wicked prosper and he suffers and he doesn't understand why. He's washed his hands in innocence in vain. The answer is that God deals with us as his people in a special way like a father disciplines his child because we have a special relationship and a uniqueness that He wants to preserve and we have an influence that He wants to maintain. And you can mark this down that whenever God's children live in disobedience, God's children pay a terrible price in consequence. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the warning of your word. How relevant it is. And even though it so, seems so negative, such a negative word, we know it's essential that we not even think about disobedience. God, help us to live like you want us to live. Help us to come back to that when we stray. That our 
light and our witness might continue to be the cutting edge of all that's done. For I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Is there anyone tonight who would like to receive Christ as personal Savior? Maybe in Vacation Bible School, you lifted your hand to say, I want to be a Christian. Now the next step is for you to come and make, by your coming, make public that decision and present yourself to be baptized. Maybe you want to come and join our church or maybe a need for rededication of your life. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.